Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. And welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are ya? All right, friends, we're soldiering on in our extremely long series about the history of online social networks. I believe this is the fifth episode in that series at this point. And by my reckoning, we have gone from the mid-1990s up to 2010 or so. And so far, if you've been following this series, you've probably noticed there have been some waves of similarities in networks as they have emerged. So early on, we had really simple networks designed to either connect or reconnect people, with the emphasis gradually shifting to the reconnect for most networks, as people were finding their real-life friends and family in this strange new world of the internet. Following that, we learned about some journaling sites that let users keep an ongoing web log or blog about their lives and hopes and dreams and thoughts. It was part personal diary, part showcase for your work. A lot of those sites 
are still around today. Many of them have gone through massive changes, including changes of ownership over the years. I'm looking at you, LiveJournal, owned by a Russian company at this point. Then we had an age where profiles became a really big thing, you know, like Facebook and MySpace really grew in this era where people would create a, a sort of home base uh, online and then they would reach out from that home base. Uh, there was also a surge of niche-oriented social networks around this time that appealed to specific demographics like dog owners or people who knit. I didn't really talk about Ravelry, but that's another example of a social network that was catering to a niche audience. Also a really exclusive social network for a while, like it was invitation only. Anyway, then we get to a bunch of services that focus on microblogging, you know, ditching the long journal format for short, you know, sometimes witty or pithy messages. This would be your Twitters, your Plurks, your Jaikus, and to a lesser extent, your Tumblrs, because Tumblr obviously is more than just short blogs. And that was the next entry, really. And now we're coming up to the the latest in this series. We're up to about 2010 and we get to Pinterest, the picture perfect social network, at least on the surface. But like many of the companies we've already talked about in this series, Pinterest has a dark side as well. And we'll get to that. But first, where did Pinterest come from? Well, it all began with Ben Silberman. He had worked for Google before he set off to go into business for himself. And first he attempted to create an e-commerce app for the iPhone that he called Tote, T-O-T-E. But apparently users found the design of Tote too complicated. And I can believe that. It sounds like something that can happen when you consider that Silberman came from Google because we all know Google's projects are driven by engineers and sometimes that shows. Not to say that the products are bad, but they work the way an engineer would put it together. And for people who aren't engineers, it can sometimes come across as needlessly complicated. Anyway, Tote fumbled the bag, as it were, and Silberman teamed up with Evan Sharp and Paul Sciara, who came out of Facebook and Radius Ventures LLC. And together, these three brainstormed an idea that would be around an image-based social network, like photograph-based. Not necessarily images that you took yourself. It could be, but it didn't have to be. And it would be almost like a combination of scrapbooking and social networks where you could create image boards around themes. Maybe you create a board around the theme of Edwardian costuming. I can't tell you how many of those I've visited, and I'm not being facetious. Maybe you create a different board for things like scenic overlooks, places that just have a gorgeous view. Uh, maybe you create a board that has interesting jewelry on it from various creators or really anything else if you if you like. So they worked on their idea throughout 2009. And in March 2010, they launched the site with a closed beta. So just a small group of users who were testing it out, making sure that everything worked the way it was intended. They opened this up slightly, and then people in the beta program were allowed to send invites to others, but it was still otherwise uh, a closed beta. And like we've seen with other entries in this series, that kind of exclusivity and controlled entry drove up interest. Like I said in previous episodes, everybody wants to get into the club 
that barely lets anyone in because you want to be one of the cool people. Uh, we'll hear that again before we're through with this series, because once upon a time, I got to be a cool person. It um, it didn't stick, obviously. But we're still talking Pinterest here. The team held back on opening up the floodgates and growth was steady, but, you know, fairly modest. You know, in three months, they had 3,000 users. And in nine months, it was up to 10,000. And by a year later, this little niche site was the talk of the social network industry. And Time Magazine declared it one of the best sites in the world at that point. So the growth in users exploded. And over the years, they grew tremendously. These days, the number of users are it's somewhere in the 430 million neighborhood, which is not bad. You know, it's not Facebook by a long shot. But 430 million is a lot of people. From early on, Pinterest became a site that attracted brands to it because companies could create Pinterest accounts and boards and use these boards to showcase products in attractive ways. So it was kind of like getting access to a magazine and being able to turn every single page of that magazine into an ad. Companies loved this and it worked. Pinterest also became a social network that had far more women as members than men, which made it a real outlier. In fact, estimates say that women make up more than 70% of the user base on Pinterest. And it kind of tried to groom and cultivate a reputation for being a woman-friendly and safe space. More on that in a moment, too. Now, an early obstacle for Pinterest came when folks actually did something no one ever does— and they read the terms of service because until 2012, the wording said that Pinterest would own all images uploaded to the website. Yeah, you might have taken the photo. If you upload it to Pinterest, Pinterest claims ownership of the image, not you. And in 2012, Pinterest committed to never selling those images. So, you know, it was one of those complicated things. You think, well, I took the photo. I should have the copyright to that photo. But Pinterest was saying, we published the photo, so now we have the copyright, and you agreed to it in the terms of service. So that that was a bit of a, a sticking point uh, early in Pinterest's history. In 2019, skipping way ahead, because, I mean, the company grows, the company gets lots more users, people begin to find really creative ways to use it, but there's no real point in, in diving into all that, because I've pretty much summed up what I would say. But in 2019, the team decided to hold an initial public offering. So when you go from being a privately held company to a publicly traded company, and it was bringing in a lot of revenue, but it had not yet become profitable. So again, Pinterest launched in 2010. In 2019, it's going to become a publicly traded company. But throughout its history at this point, it had not once turned a profit. It was operating at a loss. So it was bringing in lots and lots of money, but it cost more just to keep in business. So this is not a huge surprise. It's not like it's an outlier for Pinterest. We have seen lots of social networks follow this route because the first phase of a social network typically is all about building value by attracting a large user base. You know, you you want to get as many people on your service as possible and grow, 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 grow. That is your goal. Then once you have a pretty large user base, you try to figure out how to make money off of them or with them, because typically 
your user base becomes your product and advertisers become your customers. Now, Pinterest would not post its first profit until 2021, which is last year when I'm recording this. Anyway, in 2019, the company went public. Now, at its height, the stock was valued at $85 per share. However, as of this recording, it's around $23 per share, which is a fairly drastic drop-off, but we've got a bigger one later in this episode. Earlier this year, back in June 2022, Ben Silberman stepped down as CEO. He had been in that position since 2010, and he stepped down. He is now the chairman of the board, and a guy named Bill Reddy has taken the helm of Pinterest. And I guess you could say that Bill was prepared to do the job. Anyway, Reddy comes from companies like PayPal and Google and has a long history and things like uh, monetization. Silverman likely stepped down in part due to an issue with the company's stock price falling, even as it was posting its first profits in company history. But then there's also this dark stuff that we need to talk about that came to light over the past couple of years. So in 2020, so two former Pinterest employees came forward, uh, two women who accused Pinterest of being a, a culture where things like racist and sexist behavior were running rampant within the company and that there were issues with pay inequality and that the company was known to take retaliatory actions against employees who spoke out about this kind of stuff. Then Francis Brower, an executive with Pinterest, sued the company on the grounds of gender discrimination and retaliation. Uh, shareholders began to sue the company as well because of these kind of issues. Employees staged a digital walkout of Pinterest so my guess is like these actions collectively also contributed to Silberman's decision to step down. Now, Pinterest would settle Brower's lawsuit for $20 million and had an additional $2.5 million earmarked for charities that help you know, like women and people of color within the tech sector. Meanwhile, one of the women who stepped forward in 2020 would end up working with California lawmakers to draft legislation that protects employees who speak out against their employers. So it's legislation that really comes down hard on things like retaliation. Then we have the matter of Christine Martinez. She claims she is the unacknowledged co-founder of Pinterest, that she worked as an unpaid consultant when Silberman and Sciara and Sharp were brainstorming on how Pinterest would work. She filed a lawsuit that specifically named Silberman and Sciara, claiming that they, that they had listened to her advice. She had served as a mentor and a, 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 a counsel for them when it came to designing a product that was really targeting women users. So she says like, they didn't know anything about appealing to women, so they turned to me and I gave them guidance. She claims to have been the person responsible for deciding that users would organize images on boards and that she played a part in creating the terminology of connecting an image to a board and calling it a, a an action of pin it, like you pin it to your, your bulletin board. Now, unfortunately for Ms. Martinez, uh, she never had any sort of written contract with the creators. It's not like she was an official contractor or, or uh, uh, consultant or anything like that. 
It was all more of a verbal agreement. She says there was an understanding she would be compensated should the company ever become a success. And when Pinterest went public in 2019 and there was no check in the mail, she says she realized that she was not going to be compensated and that the co-founders, she says, were engaged in idea theft. Thus, she files a lawsuit against the company. Now, the lack of documentation makes it seem to me like Ms. Martinez has a pretty tough case to make, even assuming everything she says is accurate. For the record, I have no reason to doubt her. It's just that there seems to be little in the way of corroborating evidence at this stage. But again, I'm not involved in the trial. There could be tons of stuff, and I'm just not aware of it. So maybe that's the case. But at any rate, as of this recording, that lawsuit is moving forward. So Martinez originally filed this lawsuit back in September 2021, and then Pinterest moved to dismiss the case in December 2021. And then June of this year, that being 2022, a judge ruled that the case can move forward. Justice is ever so swift here in the United States. Anyway, we'll have to see where this goes and whether Pinterest will defend itself or settle out of court. Okay, that's just one more in our line of social networks. We've got lots more to come, but first let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, 
and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. We're back. So our next social network also relates to images, but this time we're talking about Instagram. So we've already mentioned Instagram uh, because, you know, we covered Facebook and Facebook now known as Meta acquired Instagram in 2012 for at, a, at the time a staggering $1 billion. Uh, that would positively be overshadowed by Facebook's subsequent acquisition of WhatsApp for $16 billion two years later. So we're just going to talk briefly about Instagram's early years and how things changed post-acquisition because a lot of the stuff we talked about kind of feeds right into the Facebook entry that we already did earlier in this series. So before Instagram, there was an app called Bourbon. A developer named Kevin Systrom created Bourbon, which was not a type of whiskey, but rather an app that let you check into new places and gave your friends the chance to see where you were from place to place. Uh, it was spelled B-U-R-B-N. And uh, in many ways, this was similar to Foursquare, the original version of Foursquare, which had launched in 2009. Uh, so we did get a little brief period of location-based check-in services that relates to social networks. Some of them would interact with social networks so that you could post your check-ins to, say, your Facebook account, that kind of stuff. Uh, and some of these would pivot to do other things. Foursquare did this. Foursquare pivoted away from the check-in business, uh, mostly because there were a lot of people who had safety and privacy concerns about these, and it became harder and harder to monetize those without falling into some potential uh, traps when it comes to regulators. Because, I mean, obviously, anytime you're monetizing a person's location, that gets into some sticky situations. So a lot of those would end up moving away from the location-based check-in stuff. Anyway, uh, Systrom got some financial backing for Bourbon, and he brought on uh, Mike Krieger to help build out the app. But over time, they both realized that Bourbon was too similar to Foursquare and that their test users were actually sharing photos like crazy more than they were using the app to check into physical locations. So they decided they would switch rails and instead they would develop the app as a photo sharing social network, but they wanted to change the name as well. And they came up with the name Instagram because it's a play on the phrase instant camera and on the word telegram, which I'm guessing all of y'all already knew, but I thought I would just throw it in there for, you know, the sake of being complete. Now, as Instagram, the app launched in October 2010, initially just for iOS. Within three months, the app had more than a million users, so it was off to the races. 
Uh, a month and a half after that, they were up to 2 million users. The trajectory of growth outpaced earlier social networks like Facebook and Twitter. They were just on a rocket ship, really. And I'm guessing that's why Facebook would ultimately come forward with an offer to buy out Instagram, because as anyone who has paid any attention to Facebook slash Meta knows, the company typically tries to do two things if any other service starts to gain some traction against Facebook's other products. First thing they will try to do is buy it. And if that fails, they will try to copy it in an effort to keep people on Meta slash Facebook platforms. Because we all know if you're spending time on someone else's service, well, then you're spending less time on Meta's services, and that's bad for Meta's bottom line. But we're not quite up to the acquisition just yet. The early Instagram allowed users to post images, to leave comments on other people's images, and to follow other users. And that was about it. A little less than a year after launch, Instagram would introduce options that would really change things up, make things more attractive for Instagram. Uh, they included some digital filters and some image editing features. At the same time, iPhone's cameras were improving. So it was kind of a perfect convergence of the hardware improving and the software giving more options that attracted new users. And now users could tweak their photos, even adding camera effects before sharing them with their followers. And it really made Instagram pop in popularity. In 2012, Android users would finally get a chance to use Instagram as there was now an Android version of the app. And not too long after the Android version came out, Facebook announced its intent to acquire Instagram. Now, when Facebook bought Instagram for a billion bucks, the startup app company was really small. Like there was a baker's dozen worth of employees. And for those of you who aren't familiar with what a baker's dozen is, that means 13. So imagine being one of 13 people when the company you work for has been bought by, a, a, by another company for a billion dollars. That had to be a heck of a day. So Facebook buys Instagram, probably because of a combination of factors like a desire to scoop up competition because they didn't want the fact that, you know, Instagram was attracting younger users. Facebook was kind of already having an issue in attracting young users. Like the users they had, they had in droves, but it's it was getting harder and harder to convince younger people to come into the service. Whereas Instagram, that was really attractive to a lot of young people. So one thing Facebook was doing was buying audience. But another reason was that they did not want some company like Google or Twitter to get hold of Instagram and potentially get a leg up on Facebook. Now, at the time, the folks at Instagram were assured that they would remain in charge and they wouldn't really have to worry about Facebook interfering with Instagram's operations too much. But as time would go on, the team at Instagram would see Facebook both direct Instagram to incorporate specific features, as well as it would lift some of Instagram's functionality for other Facebook products and thus kind of make Instagram less special as a result. So Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger both chose to leave Instagram in 2018, which was coming at a tough time for Facebook, though you could argue not nearly as tough as this past year has been in many ways. So by 2018, Facebook was already known as essentially celebrating the death of privacy, which it was getting flack for. But the company was also in the spotlight due to issues like Cambridge Analytica, 
uh, foreign intelligence scandals, concerns about misinformation campaigns, and more. Obviously, a lot of that has not changed in years since. In fact, some of it has just expanded to other types of misinformation, like uh, when the pandemic broke out and COVID misinformation ran rampant on Facebook. Anyway, the initial word was that Systrom and Krieger wanted to set out to make something new. And it was about a year after that, in 2019, when publications like Wired and The Verge started to publish articles that gave more details into what may have driven the co-founders to leave the company they created. And there were a lot of them. For one thing, apparently Instagram's popularity was a matter of resentment among certain Facebook staff because they were looking at Instagram as pulling traffic away from Facebook proper. And so it became kind of a territorial thing. Now, it is never good when you have this kind of animosity between different departments within the same company. I know there's some companies that try to foster a sense of competitiveness against each other in these departments. I personally find that to be uh, counterproductive for the overall health of the company. But what do I know? I'm not a billionaire. Anyway, making matters worse, Zuckerberg would say in an earnings call that Instagram's success was largely due to the support it was getting from Facebook. But as we've already heard in this episode, Instagram was already on an adoption trajectory that was way more aggressive than Facebook's own history. So it was tough because for on one hand, Instagram staff were being hated on but because of their success. And on the other hand, they their success was being claimed by the same department that hated them for being successful. So it was uh, kind of a double whammy in that sense. But another issue was that there was increased interference and restrictions coming from Mark Zuckerberg himself. Uh, in particular, there was a time when Kevin Systrom was giving interviews to the press and Zuckerberg subsequently passed an edict company-wide saying no one would be allowed to talk to the press unless they first got permission from either Zuckerberg or from Sheryl Sandberg. And I'm sure that rubbed Systrom the wrong way because it sends the message that he's not trustworthy, right? He can't represent the company well without permission. He's not towing the line. And y'all, I have been on that kind of situation in the past, not at iHeart, but in the past I've been in that same situation and I can definitely tell you it feels like an insult. Anyway, like I mentioned before, Facebook was making demands on Instagram and lifting features for the core Facebook app. And all of that was just not what Systrom and Krieger wanted. And so they split. Anyway, that's about all I have to say about Instagram, as we did, as, as I said, cover some of this stuff already in the Facebook entry. Now, obviously, we've seen Instagram change a great deal over time. There's been a greater emphasis on algorithm served content. So you're far less likely to see stuff that is from your friends and family that you follow and more likely to see stuff that Instagram thinks you want to see. So for some people, that might be great because you're discovering stuff that you otherwise wouldn't know. But for others, it's very frustrating that you're not seeing the stuff you you joined Instagram to see, right? Uh, then, of course, Instagram introduced Reels back in 2020. It was a pretty obvious attempt to copy TikTok and convince users not to jump ship to the younger social network which had limited success, but it's another example. You know, again, if Facebook can't buy it, they try to copy it. Uh, there's also the ongoing concern that Instagram's model is causing harm to younger users, particularly to young women. So back in late 2021, Facebook whistleblower Frances Hogan uh, shared internal documents from her former employer 
And she shared them with journalists and lawmakers. And among those documents were discussions about how Instagram was potentially contributing to negative mental health conditions for young women in particular. Uh, That story is still unfolding. It prompted Facebook slash Meta to scrap, at least for the time being, their plans to launch a version of Instagram targeting younger users, which gets into some pretty dark stuff. But I'm going to save the rest for another time because I'm sure I'll do episodes about Instagram in the future where we'll really dive into all that. Now, the same year Instagram launched, there was a similar social network called Path that took the stage. So again, we're seeing waves of similar networks hit at the same time. So this time we're talking about the centralized theme of a social network centered around sharing photos. Now, Path was founded by Dave Morin, a former product manager at Facebook, and the Napster founder, Sean Manning, and a former Napster engineer and future Slack designer named Dustin Moreau in 2010. So like Instagram, Path was a mobile-based social network service. In fact, it remained mobile-based throughout its history. It never had a desktop site. And it let users share photos with their friends and family. But unlike Instagram, Path limited how far and wide users could connect. So originally, the service would let users connect with up to 50 people max. And the implication was that Path is really something for users to rely upon with their close friends and family, but it's not trying to encourage you to share it with every casual acquaintance or friends of friends. This would eventually change over the course of the service's life, which, spoiler alert, would ultimately come to an end. Path is no longer a thing. Uh, Path would later increase the cap to 150 connections and then ultimately would remove the cap entirely because... While their approach was meant to give people a sense that this is really for your actual community of friends and family, that limitation meant Path was inhibiting its own growth. And it ultimately meant that Path would not reach a level of success and would would fizzle out. Anyway, when it started off, Path had a similar feel to Instagram, which was the appeal for for many users. Um and yet it felt smaller than Instagram. And that also appealed to a certain group of users. They didn't have to worry about their photos being seen by total strangers because Path would limit sharing to just their own close contacts. Later, Path would incorporate other features that made it similar to some of its competitors. Users would be able to post updates that were kind of similar to tweets on Twitter. They could also use Path to check into locations, kind of like Foursquare or the aforementioned Bourbon. But behind the scenes, things were not going particularly well. For one thing, in 2012, users became aware that Path was recording user phone contacts. So if you joined Path, it really meant handing the company your network of contacts, and at no point did Path apparently alert users to this, let alone secure their permission, which, you know, that's a big no-no. And so the U.S. government got very interested in Path and what data the company was actually gathering from its users and how the company was using that data. So the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, ultimately would fine Path 800000 bucks due to the company storing data belonging to underage users in particular. And the U.S. government ruled that Path would be subjected to review for every two years with regard to its privacy policies and practices. On top of that, Path was struggling to compete with other social networks like Instagram, Uh, It eventually hit a peak of around 15 million users, which is decent, but the company still had a fraction of the users that were found on bigger social networks. 
In 2015, a company called Kakao out of South Korea would acquire Path, and while Path's usage continued to decline in America, it did enjoy a modest amount of popularity in Indonesia. However, even that would not be enough to keep Path going, and in the fall of 2018, Kakao announced that Path would shut down, which it almost immediately did. Okay, we've got some more to get through before the end of this episode, but first let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.
Okay, we're back. We're up to 2011, and that's when we get a flagship product that would mark another concept in social networking. And this time, it's the concept of disappearing content. As in, this product adopted the idea that people should be able to share information, and that information should have a limited lifespan. And after a given amount of time, it disappears forever. And I am, of course, talking about Snapchat. Now, Snapchat started off as a different named app. It was called Peekaboo, P-I-C-A-B-O-O. It was founded by three Stanford students, Evan Spiegel, Bobby Murphy, and Reggie Brown. And in case you're wondering if the idea was always about trying to find ways to convince people to post nude and explicit photos and videos, the answer is yes. Yes, that was the idea the whole time. So just as Facebook got its start as a way for Harvard students to score how hot their classmates were, Snapchat was all about how can we convince people to post risque photos of themselves. Uh, a lot of startup founders are happen to be privileged young men, white men in particular, and they are like the worst. And yes, I know I'm editorializing, but it's my show and I don't care. Anyway, the story goes that Reggie Brown thought up this idea. He thought if you could make a site that would allow photos to only stay up for a given amount of time uh, and then it would disappear forever, you could probably convince a lot more young women to post sexy photos of themselves. And so then he goes down the hall and he tells his buddy and his party partner, Evan Spiegel, about it because these guys were total party boys at Stanford and they decided they would pursue this idea. They were like, this is a million dollar idea. By the way, my guess is Reggie was such a party bro that the other two co-founders spotted how he might not quite fit in with their plans. So in 2011, they pushed him out of the company. So the guy who allegedly came up with the idea in the first place gets kicked out. He would later sue the two co-founders. He successfully would be awarded more than $150 million. But importantly, that was in cash, not in a stake in the company which really important because when the company would go public eventually in 2017, it turned the other co-founders into billionaires. So he got 150 million, but the other two became billionaires. Uh, that same Reggie Brown would later get into trouble with the law a couple of times for doing stuff like allegedly driving recklessly in luxury cars in South Carolina and also allegedly harassing neighbors. Uh, he even had a warrant out for his arrest at one point, but apparently had left South Carolina at the time but I don't know much else about what's happened to him in the years since. Anyway, that's all gossipy stuff. Let's focus on the app itself. So Peekaboo launched for iOS in 2011. Brown gets pushed out of the company not long after that. By September 2011, Peekaboo changes names to Snapchat. A year later, Spiegel would write in the first blog post for the company, so this is 2012, a sort of pitch for the app, which had already been out for a while. And surprise, surprise, he left out the bit where the guys developed it in the hopes of seeing women take off their clothing. Instead, Spiegel said that, quote, we're building a photo app that doesn't conform to unrealistic notions of beauty or perfection, but rather creates a space to be funny, honest, or whatever else you might feel like at the moment you take and share a snap, end quote. So, now, the emphasis was really just on real-time ephemeral photo sharing. A snap, uh, a photo, in other words, would stay open for one to ten seconds, depending on what the user had set for that photo, and then it would disappear. 
So you get a chance to see it, and then it was gone. Snapchat launched for Android in 2012, and once again, Facebook started to take notice of a startup that was one, pulling focus away from Facebook properties, and two, attracting younger users, something that Facebook is always struggling with. Instagram had given Facebook access to a younger audience than what had been on Facebook, and Snapchat was giving access to an even younger crowd in the form of teenagers. So stories kind of conflict about this next bit, but the general sense I get is that at some point early in Snapchat's history, probably around 2012 or so, Mark Zuckerberg made an offer to Evan Spiegel to acquire Snapchat, and Spiegel refused. So then Facebook goes and develops an app called Poke, which was named after the first in-Facebook app. That app let users send a little Poke message back and forth to each other. You would trade it off if you received it, then you could send it back. And Poke, the app, was a little different. It let users send images to each other, images that would automatically delete after viewing or after going unviewed after a certain amount of time. Essentially, it was copying what Snapchat was already doing. And again, if Facebook can't buy its competition, it tries to run them out of business by emulating them. Poke briefly got a lot of attention, but it was not long before folks kind of bailed on Poke and went to Snapchat. So while Zuckerberg tried to use the power of Facebook to squash Snapchat, at least according to some accounts, that effort failed. Allegedly, Zuckerberg then offered to purchase Snapchat for $3 billion with a B dollars in 2013. But Spiegel turned that offer down too. And then, supposedly, Google made a couple of offers to purchase Snapchat, with one in 2016 being for $30 billion. That's 10 times what Zuckerberg had offered, and they still got a no thanks. Snapchat, the company, which would later become Snap Incorporated, would introduce other features over time. Tons of camera effects would increase Snapchat's appeal among young users who could make themselves look like, you know, puppies or monsters or I don't know. Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids, who can understand anything they say? That takes me back. Anyway, users would eventually be able to send short videos to one another in addition to photos. Uh, also with the feature that the videos would disappear after viewing. Spiegel and team were aiming at teenagers primarily, you know, kids who didn't want to be on Facebook because that's where their parents were. Um, nor did they necessarily want the restrictions in place on Instagram. The immediacy and the temporary nature of Snaps was what was attractive to its users. Snap would also introduce stories that let Snapchat users post a series of photos and videos to make, you know, a story. But the big difference here is that a snap is something that a user could send to a specific person or group of people. So let's say you took a funny pic of your dog and you send it as a snap to your friend who happens to love your dog, but you don't, you know, blast it to everybody else who couldn't give a crap about your dog. I like your dog. Don't get me wrong. I love dogs. Some of your friends are real jerks. But a story, on the other hand, becomes a series that anyone following your account can view. So a snap is kind of a, a one-to-one, and a story is kind of a one-to-many. Snapchat also introduced uh, a chat feature that 
doesn't keep an ongoing log for that chat. So when you do open up a chat, you can read the most recent messages, but nothing before that. And anything you post will go to the other person, but they also won't see the full history of the chat log. It provides a bit more privacy between the two communicators. Now, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, looked a little bit closer at Snapchat. It was suspicious that perhaps the site wasn't quite as diligent or as forthcoming about the disappearing nature of material on the service as it claimed to users. So the fear was that people were posting images and believing them to only be around temporarily, and thus there was no real risk to privacy, when in fact... Those images might be sitting on servers somewhere, or there were third-party tools that would allow people to record things that were posted to Snapchat, and Snapchat was not alerting users to this. Like, it's you could argue it's not Snapchat's responsibility to, uh, to, to look after all these third-party things, but you could argue it is its responsibility to let users know, hey, this is an issue, and they weren't doing that. So the FTC argued Snapchat had deceived users with regard to the disappearing nature of the media that was shared on the service. So the FTC pointed out a few ways that Snaps could outlast what Snapchat had claimed, and in the end, Snapchat agreed to pay a settlement to the FTC over these and other issues, including the fact that Snapchat was apparently harvesting location data from Android users while not disclosing that in terms of service. Snap would also introduce a tool called Discovery, which allowed brands to post content on Snapchat. I'm not going to go further into that because I feel like that's really more of something I could chat about in a full episode about the company. And in 2016, Snapchat introduced Spectacles. These are physical glasses that have built-in cameras in the frames. They The cameras face outward, obviously, because who wants to just see, you know, the skin on the temples of the person wearing it. And uh, they can pair with a smartphone and thus record very short snippets of video. They were initially sold through a proprietary vending machine called SnapBot, but you could later pick them up online. When Snapchat, now known as Snap Incorporated, went public, the stock was to be priced at $17 per share. It would end up selling for more than that. Uh, It kind of had an up and down first day throughout the day, and it ended on $24.48 per share. So above what they had planned. That's good news for a company. At its peak in 2021, shares traded at more than $80 per share. Really good, right? However, today, as I record this episode, they're selling closer to $9.40 per share, which is big old youch. Now, this is not the lowest that Snap has ever traded, I should add, but it ain't great. This past year, Spiegel sent out a memo to all employees indicating that the company would be laying off around 20% of the workforce and that it would also refocus on the three main areas of development, which are community growth, revenue growth, and augmented reality, with other areas receiving a reduced budget or being eliminated entirely. Recently, Evan Spiegel sent out another message letting employees know that he wants them back in the office for 80% of the week, so four days out of the week for most folks. Spiegel has indicated that he thinks that the company isn't seeing as much collaboration as it needs to succeed. This is in line with what we've seen with a lot of other criticisms that we've heard about working remotely over the last year or so. Honestly, I'm not sure how realistic that is. Like, 
does that actually have the big impact that business owners think? Or are these other factors in the economy having a much larger impact on companies? And one of the places that business leaders look to blame, a thing that they actually have control over, is whether or not their employees have to come into the office. Uh, I, I, again, this is me editorializing, but I feel like some business leaders fret if they don't have more control over their workforce, if they feel like their workers are not there for them to look in on and make sure that they're actually doing their job as opposed to, you know, slacking off or something. They just suspect that people won't do their jobs if they're not under the thumb of the boss at the office, which speaks very lowly of their opinion of their employees in my own estimation. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily the case. I do think because it's something they can have control over, they jump on it because uh, even executives, even billionaires realize there's stuff they have no control over and that is terrifying to them. For the rest of us, we deal with it every day because we're not billionaires. So we have less control over lots of stuff in our lives and we just cope. But billionaires, they're a delicate bunch. Anyway, uh, they won't have to go back into the office until February of 2023. And then at that point, they're expected to spend 80% of the week there. I'm not sure what the reaction has been among Snapchat employees because this is fairly recent news as I record this episode. But I would imagine that a lot of people are not terribly happy about it. Anyway, um, I should likely do a full episode about Snap and Snapchat really to dive into the the whole thing. But that's a quick overview of this odd social network. Uh, there's a lot more to say. I mean, there's a ton of, of various criticisms that have been directed at Snapchat, some in good faith, some not. Uh, there are lots of controversies around the the service. I mean, it's targeting teenagers, but the nature of the app and when you know that the creators, at least at some level, were thinking about a way of encouraging women to take naked photos of themselves, that doesn't speak super well, right? Like that's really problematic to put it lightly. But yeah, I'll I'll leave all that for a future episode because there there's multiple sides to the story. I don't want to oversimplify it and say that this is all a lascivious attempt to encourage people to take risque photos. Uh, Snap has pointed out multiple times they actually have no way of seeing the content that's sent across their network, which is both important for user security and it's also important for the company's security because if anything ever is sent through Snapchat that it ends up being dangerous, for example. Let's say that, you know, uh, uh, bad actors, some terrorists, whether international or domestic, are using Snapchat to send information back and forth. Then the company has deniability, right? If they are not able to see what is being sent across the network, they cannot be held culpable for facilitating any of those communications. So, you know, there's that too. It means that, you know, if you, if you want to be able to have that immunity from culpability, then you also can't have access to all the, you know, risque photos being sent back and forth. Okay, that's it. Uh, I'm done being (laughs) a prude. (laughs) We'll we'll sign off on this episode. We'll be back with more. We're coming up on uh, a couple of other interesting entries and uh, hopefully wrapping up this series. I I hope in the next episode, we'll see. Uh, And in the meantime, I'm still working on the end of the year episode as well. 
where I'm looking at some of the big stories that have broken across 2022 in the tech space. If there are any that you think I should definitively include that don't involve Twitter and Elon Musk, because obviously those are going to go in, then reach out and let me know. There are a couple ways you can do that. One is you can download the iHeartRadio app. It's free to download, free to install and use. Navigate to Tech Stuff by putting Tech Stuff in the little search field, and you can leave a voice message by clicking on the little microphone icon. Leave it up to 30 seconds in length. If you like, you can let me know to use it in a future episode. Um, I won't do it unless you tell me to. Or if you prefer, you can reach out to me via Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to Brand New on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.